It's really been an NHS week in many ways, isn't it, in terms of select committee reports and bills being published and the great interest there's been for understandable reasons in the future of the NHS. We had a call a couple of days ago from uh, John Healy's office saying, would we be willing to host today's discussion? And of course we are. That's why we're all here today and delighted to welcome and introduce the Shadow Health Secretary, John Healy, who is going to respond to the bill as published yesterday, hearing your views on the bill. Chris, thank you very much and thanks to all of you for uh, joining us today. Thank you for inviting me or at least invite, letting me invite myself. Um, <laughs> 24 hours after the publication of the government's health and social care bill yesterday to examine the government's plans with you. For me, it's a work in progress. Perhaps for some of you it also is too. But I was, you know, I was advised before I came here by someone whose views I value and they said, if it's a King's Fund, don't be too political. Talk policy. But I'm a politician and I'm not a health policy expert. I don't know as much about health as any of you in this room, and I probably won't ever know as much about health policy as most of you in this room. And in my view, you can't fully understand public policy unless you grasp the politics. And politics strongly shapes the development and the implementation of public policy. And so for me, an understanding of policy and a discussion of policy must go with an understanding and a discussion of politics as well. So this health and social care bill published yesterday is more than three times longer than the original legislation that set the NHS up in 1948. The government is forcing through, and I quote, the biggest upheaval in the health service probably since its inception. Your words, Chris. <laughs> the NHS Chief Executive, David, Sir David Nicholson, told the Health Select Committee that he sees the government's plans in the same way. The scale of change is enormous, he said, beyond anything that anybody from the public or private sector has witnessed. In my view, the general aims are sound. Greater role for clinicians in commissioning care, more involvement of patients, less bureaucracy and a greater priority on improving health outcomes. And these aims are common between parties, between professional health professionals and with patients. But, you know, they could be achieved by the evolution of Labour's reforms rather than Andrew Lansley's reorganisation revolution. And this is high cost and high risk. And health experts, professional bodies, patients groups have all voiced concern and criticism. Of course, there are advocates, but most for some, not all the changes, and the minority that may favour the full package still warn of the simultaneous scale and speed of change. Even those mo expected to be most in favour are increasingly outspoken. The GPs, who are seen as the big winners in the new system, Hamish Meldrum, said last night, this change is going to replace one bureaucracy with another perhaps even more dangerous bureaucracy. For patients, who David Cameron insists will benefit, the Patients Association warns about instability and a serious impact on staff. For NHS managers who run the NHS, the NHS Confederation says NHS leaders up and down the country are really worried about the prospect. And for centre-right policy thinkers, who generally back the government, Civitas says... Now is not the time 
for ripping up internal structures yet again on scant evidence base. And I have to say that with NHS finances at their tightest for 50 years and the government breaking its coalition agreement promise of a real increase in NHS funding next year, this is exactly the wrong time for a huge top-down internal reorganisation of NHS management. And of course, top-down reorganisation is exactly what the government promised to stop in its coalition agreement in May. Now you know more about the NHS than I do, you see more of the NHS than I do, but it seems to me the NHS is already showing signs of strain in some areas. And with the extra pressure that the changes are now putting on the NHS, patients who have their operations cancelled or services cut back and staff who find their jobs go will see themselves as the victims of the government's handling of the health service. So with this wide range of views, with these very clear warnings, the central question is, why are the government forcing through this huge upheaval on the NHS at this time? And for me, the answer lies in the politics and not in the policy. This is a conservative plan, not a coalition plan for the future of the NHS. The Lib Dems are hapless, helpless bystanders on the government's public service reforms. The main evidence of Lib Dem health policy in the coalition programme for government was the commitment, and I quote, to elected lo local health boards, which will take over the role of primary care trust boards in commissioning care for local people. Well, that lasted 61 days until Andrew Lansley published his white paper and simply brushed it aside. So this is the Conservative plan for the NHS. This is Andrew Lansley's plan for the NHS. Now, no one in the House of Commons knows more about the NHS than Andrew Lansley, except perhaps Stephen Dorrell. But Andrew Lansley spent six years in opposition as Shadow Health Secretary. No one has visited more of the NHS no one has talked to more people who work in the NHS than Andrew Lansley. Yet, as the Health Select Committee report this week said, like most observers, the committee was surprised by the change of approach between the coalition programme and the white paper. And the Select Committee concludes, in so many words, as I believe, that these are the wrong reforms at the wrong time. They said, blunting the ability of the NHS to respond to the Nicholson challenge to improve services to patients and make sound efficiencies on a scale the NHS has never achieved before. But these plans are coherent, consistent, comprehensive. And I'd expect nothing less from Andrew Lansley. But in pub politics and in public policy, I think we often look and talk too much about what we're doing and not enough about why and the why questions. Why the huge disruption and distraction when the general aims are simple to achieve? Why the waste of two to three billion pounds when NHS finances have never been tighter? Why now? These why questions have a straightforward answer. Andrew Lansley is a Conservative. Like Oliver Letwin and George Osborne and David Cameron, who've all now given him backing, he believes in the free market. David Cameron yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions said twice that what the government wanted 
was a level playing field for private health providers. They believe that competition drives innovation, that price competition brings better value, that profit motivates performance, and that the private sector is better than the public sector. I acknowledge the ambition, but I condemn this as the core philosophy being forced into the heart of the NHS. It's wrong for patients, it's wrong for the NHS, and it's wrong for Britain. And you know, the true intent of the plans is not set out in the aims of the white paper or the arguments that are used by ministers in public. And this is not a reform for the parliament, this is a reform for the decade. And the purpose, I believe, lies in opening up all parts of the NHS to private health companies and taking what remains of the NHS out of the public sector. It lies in removing the end from the NHS so there are no consistent service guarantees for patients wherever they live and no consistent national contracts for staff. It lies in overriding service coordination and planning with competition. It lies in cutting back the comprehensive care that NHS provides from cradle to grave to a core of designated services that will have the legal protection and guaranteed funding. And if you're in doubt, I ask you to consider the moves that are more advanced in education. To abandon a whole area approach to education service planning, to promote competition between schools rather than collaboration, to see established schools undercut by transfers of funding to new providers, free schools, which are outside the system at present, and to introduce untested and costly changes when budgets are tight and under pressure from the promise to increase schools funding, which is being broken. And if you're in doubt, take a harder look at how fundamental the changes in the new health legislation will be, and look beyond the changes that ministers are ready to talk about and examine the ones they're reluctant to discuss. I think there are two types of change contained in the White Paper and the Health Bill. There are organisational change and ideological change. The ministers will talk about the first, but downplay or deny the second. You know, when you take a job like mine, you become a bit sad. In 57 pages of the White Paper, there are only three references to the market all couched as the social market. And the private sector is mentioned only three times, once in relation to the labour market. On Monday this week, the health secretary wrote around 700 words for the Times on his health plans, without a single mention of competition. And in his speech on public service reform on the same day, the Prime Minister said, these reforms aren't about theory or ideology. But, you know, the NHS reorganisation is like an iceberg, with a substantial ideological bulk being largely out of public sight. And the main changes I see at the centre of the internal NHS reorganisation, I think, can be said, as I said, classified as changes in organisation and changes in ideology. And importantly, the former does not depend on the latter. In other words, although the changes in organisation are underpinned by a fundamental change in ideology, they could be introduced without it. So an operational change. The main elements that, sit there, that are there seem to me 
the first of all, the full scale and exclusive clinical commissioning by GPs with a, an annual budget of around £80 billion. National level commissioning and many of the Department of Health's current functions being placed with this big new arm's length body, the National uh, Commissioning Board. All hospitals required to become independent foundation trusts. Patients given the right to choose their GP out of the area that they live in. The removal of strategic management in the NHS at the regional level and the abolition of primary care trusts. And then finally, the creation of health and wellbeing boards as local strategic overview bodies. That's on the organisational side, the organisational change. On the ideological side and the organisational ideological change. The elements of in the reorganisation plans which seem to derive directly from an ideological view, not an imp operational imperative, seem to me the new economic regulator at the heart of the NHS with its principal purpose to promote and guarantee competition, including general competition laws. All organisations, whether commissioning or providing NHS services, taken out of the public sector without the established standards of public information scrutiny and accountability. The requirement on commissioners to accept and use any willing provider. The removal of any limit on the use of NHS hospital beds and staff to treat privately paying patients. The introduction of price competition with maximum rather than set tariffs for treatments. Opportunities for profit making at every part of the NHS, including for the first time in the commissioning of services. Only select designated hospital services given protection from being closed down and lost to local people in the long run. The risk of financial failure, no longer a widely shared responsibility within the NHS, with the acceptance of hospitals going bust before the regulator moves in to act like a commercial administrator while other providers and GP consortia can also collapse financially before being potentially wound up and taken over. So the introduction in full of the organisational and ideological changes to the NHS seems to me to bring a number of fundamental flaws and far-reaching risks. First of all, to NHS culture and ethos. Forced market competition will replace collaboration for the patient at the heart of the NHS, creating, in my view, barriers to the cooperation and the integration of services that we've seen in recent years, for instance, with the cancer and other networks. On hospital, patients will, in the long run, see two-tier NHS services in their area. Those with the protection of designated status will be guaranteed the funding to continue. Those without won't if they fail. Competition based on price will lead to fragmenting services and cherry-picking work by new providers. You know, the unit of competition in the new system will not be the provider, but the line of service. So if a million pounds worth of work on hernia operations or pathology tests is removed from Rotherham Hospital, a million pounds of costs are not removed at the same time providing hospitals with that provide a comprehensive service for complex and costly problems, putting them at a serious disadvantage and at a serious risk. And the closure of hospital services or whole hospitals will happen 
and will result from failure to compete, not from the planned development of better alternative community-based services. And on commissioning, private health companies contracted to do commissioning with GPs means the opportunity to profit at the point of buying services. And this will raise an outcry, it seems to me, from the public and patients about money paid in dividends to shareholders not available for funding local care. And when private health companies can run commissioning for GP consortia and take work as willing providers of services to patients, there'll be a clearer and clearer conflict of interest. Patient choice of any provider and treatment, if it's introduced as the government talks, will mean rationing at an individual level, not just a collective level, which will inevitably be unequal and unfair. And then finally, on commissioning, GP consortia will not be public bodies like PCTs are now. They will be making the same decisions on the services available to patients, but will have none of the obligations to meet in public or publish <coughs> monthly financial information. So we will see in future commercial confidence stamped on many of the most important decisions taken in the NHS. But if the public and many NHS professionals have not seen this clearly, no one can blame them. As ministers are disguising this truth with soft language, they're downplaying the huge shift to put market competition at the heart of the NHS. Not so much patient-centred, as Andrew Lonsley said yesterday, as profit-centred NHS in the future. And expect this doublespeak to continue. Expect also the claims that this is simply a logical extension of Labour's policies to continue. This is wrong and again disguises the fundamental changes to the heart of the NHS in the government's plans. On GP commissioning, we as a Labour government certainly fostered the early involvement and leadership of GPs and those cited in Cumbria and Nottingham as models in the new system are working within the current system. But at the same time, you know, we ensured these developments always had the proper public openness and scrutiny and accountability. And we always recognised the important role of other clinicians, professions and specialists need to play alongside GPs. And on private health providers, we used the private sector when it could add to established NHS care, either to offer patients something new that the NHS was not doing, or to increase capacity to clear waiting lists and bring down waiting times for patients. But this was always competition within the planned and managed development of services and was never competition based on undercutting <laughs> through price. So make no mistake, this is a revolution in the NHS, not an evolution. And if you just put aside the big picture for the moment, the flu jab test. These reforms fail the flu jab test. Today, the Director of Immunisation in the NHS confirms the government isn't even confident that GPs can be left to order the flu vaccine for next winter and have said they plan to order it and organise it centrally themselves, just as we did last year. The serious point, though, is that the responsibilities and the requirements of the NHS 
add up to so much more than the sum of the health of individuals who are on GPs lists. And of course, having been slow to act at every stage in preparing for and reacting to this winter flu outbreak, the very bodies that Andrew Lansley is relying on now to sort the problem out, primary care trust, strategic health authorities, the Health Protection Agency and NHS Direct are all being abolished under his reorganisation. Now we're very in early days in opposition at the moment. What matters most of the decisions that this government is taking, what matters a lot less is what we would do if we were in government. This is a time when it's important, as our new leader Ed Miliband has said, that we pause and we take some of the lessons of some of the mistakes that we made when we were in government. But it's important also, I think, to set out some of the principles that will guide the way that we think, the way that we fashion policy for the future, and the way that we will conduct ourselves as an official opposition. And Labour has never accepted the status quo in health or accepted a second-rate NHS. Our commitment to the NHS is in our political DNA and we will defend it to the end, a health service that is there for all and fair for all. And we recognise the unprecedented pressures on the NHS now, which is why I've said in public and in the House of Commons that I will back sound efficiencies as long as all the savings are reused for frontline services to patients. And it seems to me that our Labour principles for the future in opposition must be consistent with our approach in government. So we will champion change only when it's in the best interests of patients. We believe the best innovations and improvements in health or social care come from greater collaboration, integration and partnership. We insist that the NHS, as our preeminent public service, funded by the public for the public, must have the highest standards of public openness and scrutiny and accountability. And we know that far-reaching further reforms are required to improve services and outcomes for patients and to improve value for money, especially in the shift of services out of hospitals and closer to people in the community. And we support the evolution of personalisation and choice and controlled competition in services where this brings better benefits and better outcomes for patients. So the broad ambitions, the broad objectives that we first spelt out in good to great in 2007 still hold good and still guide us today. But finally, let me reflect on the observations I've offered you and in particular suggest to you that the combination of the organisational and ideological change, the combination of being ready to talk about one, reluctant to discuss the other, means that most in the NHS are being offered at present a false prospectus by this government. Because the half-hidden ideological agenda, combined with the fundamental flaws in a full market system, mean that the government is selling almost everyone a false prospectus hospitals, councils and NHS staff. But the two great beneficiaries, according to the government, of these reforms have most reason to look hardest at the detailed small print. 
patients. Most patients, GP in practice, will not be doing what the government over the last 24 hours claims. As GPs only spend an average of around eight minutes with each patient, if they're going to carry on seeing patients, then in truth and in practice, the commissioning will not be done by them, but done in their name. And it'll be done in their name, either by the managers that are currently doing the same job in primary care trusts, or it'll be done by private health companies under contract. Expanding the open-ended choice of treatment and provider in the way that the government describes means supporting unused and underused capacity in the system, so it's highly unlikely to happen with the present financial pressures. And despite the government's boast about putting the patients at the heart of everything the NHS does, there's no place for patients on the bodies that will make the most important decisions. GP consortia, the National Commissioning Board, or the regulator monitor. And GPs. The GPs are being told that they'll call the shots deciding who provides care for their patients. But it seems to me they're likely to find that their hands are tied by monitor, the Office of Fair Trading, and the courts enforcing competition law. And their decisions are likely to be challenged by private companies if they don't accept any willing provider, especially if that any willing provider is ready to offer to undercut on price. And GPs will find themselves required to make the decisions to change and cut services to hit that £20 billion challenge on efficiency saving. And so if the local hospital services do fail, it's the GPs who will find themselves held responsible by their patients and the local public when in fact the forces of competition beyond their control may well have caused the problems. And finally, because they are making rationing decisions as well as referral decisions in the new system, GPs will find themselves faced with patients who are asking, is my doctor making these decisions on treatment in my best interests or in the best interest of their budget and of their GP consortium business. And this is not what people expected to see when they heard David Cameron say, I will protect the NHS. And this is why the NHS is the Prime Minister's biggest broken promise to date. Thank you.